Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. At the end of the seven-week study, the group that took the refeeds, they gained, or no, they lost significantly less dry fat-free mass. There's that term dry fat-free mass when we accounted for water. So they lost less of their muscle and not surprisingly, because your metabolic rate follows your muscle, they retain more of their resting metabolic rate than the other group. So in that one study, and this is the only study that's been published on this so far that I'm aware of in resistance trained people, yeah. refeeds seem to help them maintain muscle mass and have better physique outcomes. What is up everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? I am. <laughs> All right. All right, everybody. This is In Liberty and Health, episode number 140. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a very, very long time. I got perhaps one of the most well-educated people out there when it comes to uh, physique enhancement and performance, if I'm not mistaken, um, from the University of Tampa himself, Mr. Bill Campbell, um, PhD. How are you doing today? Doing good. How are you? I'm fantastic. I know we had a little bit of a blunders before getting on here, but I'm very, very excited for the conversation. So um, I guess first things first, give my audience a brief introduction of who you are and what you do. All right, so I'm a professor of exercise science at the University of South Florida, which is located in Tampa. And I also direct the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory. And it's essentially what we do in my lab is there's two areas of focus. One is sports nutrition and the other is physique enhancement. So what we do is unapologetically focus on kind of the vanity side of exercise science. So a lot of people are doing more important work in terms of preventing cancer, uh, battling obesity, and just more health focused, we focus on the cosmetic side of exercise and nutrition. And typically for people who don't necessarily need to lose additional body fat for health reasons. So my research really essentially, it helps people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle. So we embrace healthy fitness and nutrition habits and lifestyle decisions, but it's the outline goal is to optimize one's physique. Right. And I've heard you put it in the way of basically you want to make people's lives as good as possible being um, as lean as possible, essentially. So where they're not necessarily ready to go step on stage, but they could, you know, with a few weeks of conditioning, does that kind of sum it up well? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So a lot of, I would say the audience that I serve isn't necessarily a competitive bodybuilder, mm -hmm. but they are people who want to look like that, but be able to maintain it within their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Now, do you find when people are getting down to those kind of levels of body fat, because as we all know, you need to be in a pretty significant caloric deficit for an extended period of time to get as lean as you need to be to be able to step on stage. Do you find that people are often unsatisfied when they get to a certain point because they may not realize how little muscle they have? Yeah, I, th I, I believe so. And, and if they, if they, especially if they're making, I would call them poor decisions to get that lean, they lose a lot of muscle mass. So I think, yeah, in, in that situation, but that I would also say the opposite is true for some people. Okay. The, the leaner you get, the more your muscles are visible and they can actually look bigger now that they're, they're not covered with as much adipose tissue or body fat. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I think depending on the on the individual, both impressions can 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 occur for a particular person. Mm -hmm. um, one of the reasons I asked, because at one point I'm about six feet tall and I got down to about 179 pounds and at my heaviest, I was 250. So right now I normally float around 185. And I remember when I got down to that lean, I was like, wow, I'm like small. So <laughs> then, you know, I started taking my training a little bit more seriously. I did a carnivore diet for about two and a half years. And I, I'm, I'm kind of curious your thoughts on that, but we can get to that in a second. And I kind of realized that essentially for me to maintain my weight, I'm at about 2,700 to like 2,850 calories a day. I work a pretty active job and, you know, I've been working out consistently for quite a while. Um, I really found out that doing a carnivore diet, I really wasn't feeding myself enough. And looking back at those two and a half years, I thought I was was gaining all this muscle, but really I was just losing a bunch of weight. And I probably did lose a lot of muscle because I was in such a steep deficit for so long. So do you, I, that seems kind of to have been what you were getting at there a second ago is just people go on crash diets, which I do think a carnivore diet essentially is same deal with a lot of people who do a keto diet. They do these crash diets and they lose a bunch of weight, but then they tend to gain it all back. Yeah, that that's right. Um, if, if it, if it is indeed a crash diet, the there's a very good chance, a high likelihood that they're going to lose lean mass. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, and I actually just, we just went over this in my graduate class. I teach a class called the science of physique enhancement. And we actually studied crash diets. And one of the theories about them is it induces a condition or a state known as hyperphagia, which is like an uncontrollable desire to eat. It's like ravenous hunger. And in the research where that's been observed in a few times, and again, these are pretty extreme studies where there's basically starvation studies. Uh, not only is there a lot of muscle mass loss, but metabolic rates are very suppressed. But then you have this, what you're creating is a hyperphagic response. And that typically happens when your diet is over, when you go back to eating normal amounts of food and you, you get this uncontrollable desire to eat and that results in a lot and significant weight gain and it results in a situation known as fat overshoot where you keep eating and eating and eating and you keep gaining weight until you gain back the lean mass that you lost during your crash diet but in the process of just getting back to your baseline level of lean mass you've put on significantly more body fat than what you had before you started the diet to begin with. So there's a lot of harms physiologically with crash dieting or extreme approaches to losing body fat. Um, one podcast I heard you on, you had detailed out that you were doing a study trying to kind of push the envelope when it comes to losing weight. So as far as my understanding goes, you should never try to lose more than like one to 2% of total body weight per week. Um, and I think you said that in your lab, you did a study where you really pushed the envelope to see how far you could go with that while still maintaining as much lean mass as possible. Um, do you mind kind of detailing out that study for the audience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we typically like to limit the current rate of weight loss to about 1% per week. So if okay. you're 200 pounds, that's two pounds per week. Mm -hmm. If you're 150 pounds, you know, that's like six pounds per month. And what we learned from the research is when you go above that rate of weight loss, more of that body weight is coming from lean mass and not as much from body fat. Mm -hmm. So my lab did, and again, I, I'm very cautious. I, I'm kind of like anti-crash dieting, take sure. your time. But we did test that. What, what we did was for a two week period, we put subjects on a very aggressive, I don't know if I would call it a severe, but a very aggressive caloric deficit. It was approximately 40% of a caloric deficit for two weeks. And we did everything we could to maintain the subject's muscle mass and their metabolic rate. And by this, I say everything, we had them resistance train. We, we supervised their resistance training. We also had them eat a really high protein diet, about 2.2 grams per kg or one gram per pound of body weight. And surprisingly to me, at the end of the two-week rapid fat loss strategy, they lost a significant amount of body fat, and they actually were able to maintain their dry fat-free mass. And when I say dry, we, we accounted for the body water that they lost because that can be incorrectly affiliated with lean mass. Mm -hmm. 
So when you accounted for the water that they lost, which everybody's going to lose water when you lose body weight initially, because you, you reduce your carbohydrate stores in your muscles and liver. And by default, you're losing water with that process. So yes, I'm against crash dieting, but now I would say based on our data, I, I, I kind of have an updated opinion. And that is if you're going to take an aggressive approach, which I don't, I don't think is a good idea, but if you're going to, as long as your aggressive approach is short-lived, in our case, two weeks, and as long as they're resistance training, and as long as you're eating a very high-protein diet, then it looks like you can do that and still lose almost all of the body weight from body fat stores and retain your lean mass that you've, that you've built up over the years from your training. What's going on, guys? Um, we're going to take a quick break from the show to tell you about these show sponsors and the way that you can support me and this podcast. Um, I'm sponsored by Axe and Sledge. I won't really focus in here, but uh, right here in my hand, I have their um, the grind, which is essential amino acids and hydration. Um, feel free to check it out. Um, this is your mom's sweet peach. They have some awesome flavors and awesome names. They also have multivitamins, fat burners, creatine, beta, beta alanine. Um, all sorts of different supplements to help you get all jacked and tan and help you become a person more full of uh, liberty and health as this show is about. So um, if you want to support me and support this podcast, then feel free to go to axandsledge.com and check out um, all their great supplements there and use code MATOVIC10, that's M-A-T-O-V-C-I-K-1-0 at checkout for a little discount and to let them know I sent you their way. All right, everybody. Thanks. Now back on to the show. Right. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's really, really interesting because um, for a long time there, I was really hooked on the idea of, okay, well, you want to get weight off as quick as possible because that's, you know, just what's sexy. It sells to people. But then um, I became more of the mind of, hey, you should probably try to lose weight as slow as possible. But then the problem with that is if you go too slow, then, you know, life happens and you may have, you know, a weekend where you still are in a deficit, but there's still some mental fatigue that comes with that, which can ultimately affect you getting on your way to your goals. Um, one thing that I was also kind of curious about that you hear a lot of people talk about, and this is kind of like the dream, right? Body recomposition. Um, what kind of studies and what kind of populations do you generally see body recomposition happening in? And if you don't mind, kind of lay out your best understanding of body recomposition. Yeah, so let's define what that is. Body recomposition, the way it's typically defined, is a loss of body fat and a simultaneous gain in lean mass, or I'm just going to say muscle mass, even though technically it's lean body mass or fat-free mass. So you're losing body fat and gaining muscle. So the, at, at first of all, can that happen? We used to think, and it used to be stated a lot, that can't happen. It's It's impossible. You can't lose fat and gain muscle at the same time. Well, that's not true. It is possible. We have multiple studies that have been published, some from my own lab, that reported, yep, you lose muscle and you can gain muscle mass. Now, I would, I follow that up with this caveat, is that the expected outcome of a diet? The answer is no. And again, this is always in the context of dieting. You don't lose body fat unless you have an energy deficit. And usually most people are going to diet to induce that energy deficit. Mm -hmm. So should you, when you go on a diet, reduce your food intake? Should you expect to lose body fat? Yes. Should you expect to gain lean mass? No. Is it possible? Yes. It's happened. It's been documented many times, but it's still the exception. Mm -hmm. So now we ask, okay, what are the behaviors? What are the strategies that are used when it is observed? And there's the, the, the three things that are almost always present is a modest caloric deficit. So again, an, a, not an extreme, not a crash dieting approach to losing body weight, high protein intake and resistance exercise. Mm -hmm. Then we look at, okay, the people that are doing that, do we mostly see it in trained people, experienced people, new people? And the magnitude of a body recomposition outcome is greater in people who have very little training experience because they're very receptive to the stimulus of building muscle mm -hmm. when resistance training uh, more recently. So they haven't adapted as much. 
because they just haven't, haven't engaged in that mode of exercise. So people that are new to training who go on a diet are much more likely to have a body recomposition outcome. Now, people like myself that have been training for many years, people that have been training for decades, they are less likely to experience body recomposition, but it can happen. And one other thing that a lot of people don't appreciate is if you, a lot of people, if you have previously in your life had larger amounts of muscle mass, and then you've stopped training for a long time, your body can put back on lean mass that it previously, previously had much easier than what it took to build it the first time. So in a, a lot of these studies, I believe there's one in police officers that I'm thinking of right now. It's more likely that you're regaining previously built muscle mass that you just lost over time. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't want to get into the details, but there, there's a, there's a mechanism that describes this. And I would say it's theoretical. It's called the myonuclear domain theory. Mm -hmm. And that just basically says, if you have enough satellite cells in your muscles, they remain. And even if you have a latent period of time, you're not training, your muscle cells still have this elevated quantity or density of myonuclear fibers. And that allows you to gain muscle mass quicker than originally building it the first time. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really, really interesting. And it's been something that I've personally tried to kind of step towards. Do you think basically to set up a general guideline for somebody with the uh, desired outcome of body recomposition, you would kind of have to say, okay, well, I'm going to have this extended period of time when we're only going to have like, let's say maybe like a two to 300 calorie deficit, maybe do some cardio and try to push the food as much as possible without um, going too high or too low. Like, what do you think what some of the parameters would be to set up a good body recomposition um, routine? Yeah. And it's funny. I, I don't know if I've ever been asked about a body composition routine, but uh, I would say it's how I would set up any fat loss diet. It, okay. it wouldn't change. Um, I guess if I wanted to make more money, <laughs> probably call it the body recomp diet. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's going to be a, that, that's not true. If it were specifically geared towards body recomposition, what, here's the change I would do that I wouldn't normally do. I would make the caloric deficit a little more modest. So instead of reducing calories by 25%, I'd probably do 10 or 15%. So that's there. That's, I'm glad you asked that. I think I just learned something about my own philosophy tonight. <laughs> um, but what would be the same as high protein? I typically like to get people, if they can handle it, a gram per pound of body weight. I like them to have resistance training that's focused on intensity, mm -hmm. meaning that you're taking every set to near failure. And you um, also focus on as money and a lifestyle, like try to get enough sleep, try not to have a lot of anxiety or stress in your life. Right. Interesting. Um, one thing I've also heard you talk about a lot, and this seems to be such like a big gray area for a lot of people is cardio. Um, you'll have some people tell you if you go out for one run, then you're going to lose 20 pounds of muscle on that run. Right. And obviously I'm being a little hyperbolic. And then it seems like some people say you should just do all the cardio you possibly can. Um, do you know what the kind of happy balance is for cardio? Because I used to be a runner, right? I love running, but I don't do it as much anymore just because I feel like it would interfere with my um, recovery to my legs. But right now I'm doing like an upper lower split. So there's four days. To me, it kind of seems like if you keep your cardio on separate days, generally you're going to be okay. But um, I'm curious of what your thoughts are. And I believe you've done some research on this as well. Yeah, so last summer I spent all summer just diving into this topic. Now, I have not done any research in my own lab, mm -hmm. but I feel like I've read every study ever published <laughs> in the English language on this topic. And I think there is a lot of confusion around it. Uh, like you mentioned an interference effect. So the interference effect is, it's th that proposes that if you do resistance training and aerobic training, let's just say running, that you're going to limit the amount of muscle mass that you're going to be able to build. Mm -hmm. We have no evidence of that in the, in the scientific literature. Mm -hmm. In fact, the evidence that we have would suggest you actually maintain more muscle mass when you do cardio, um, when in a diet, when you're trying to lose body weight. Um, and then if you add resistance training to that, 
even better. You're going to retain even more. Mm -hmm. Now, the interference where it does manifest itself is not with muscle hypertrophy. So it's, it doesn't appear to limit your ability to gain muscle, but it does, it can have an impact on maximal strength. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be careful if you're a power lifter, or you're trying to, you're a strong man, you're trying to maximize strength. Or if you're a power athlete, if you if you need to engage in explosive, high power activities, there again we have some evidence of of an interference where an excess cardio detracts from that. Now back to the hypertrophy perspective, we don't have data in professional bodybuilders or people with a massive amount of extra muscle mass. Let's just say enhanced muscle mass. Is it possible in those situations that doing a lot of cardio would, would limit or interfere with their ability to gain muscle? I think that's possible. I don't know. We don't have evidence that it does. We don't have sure. evidence that it doesn't. But in terms of, of um, just cardio, it's, it doesn't seem to have as much negative of an impact on muscle hypertrophy as what a lot of people think. Now, I want to say one more thing. You mentioned a really key word. You said recovery. Well, that's now another area. Mm -hmm. If you think or you know that your cardio is impacting your ability to recover from your resistance training programs, then I think that that's, that should be considered. And you, you, what you don't want to do if you're trying to build muscle, you want to make sure resistance training is your priority. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that your training sessions, when you're doing your squats, your leg extensions, leg curls, lunges, whatever you're doing, that that can be as an intense as possible, um, again, to near failure. So let's just say intense. Mm -hmm. And you, you want to recover from that ideally. So th there's a consideration. If you do feel like it's impeding your recovery, then th there might be a reason to, to have some some safeguards on the amount mm -hmm. or timing of your cardio. And if you want to talk about the timing, we can. Okay, yeah. So I, I, I'm really interested in more practical takeaways. And not, I'm sorry, that, that sounds like none of that was practical. All of it was very <laughs> practical. Um, but like, from what I understand, and from what I'm kind of collecting is that you want to kind of limit as much. So like, I've heard that you should try to limit your cardio bouts to like less than a half hour um, per session, because after that, it may be a little bit too much. Um, and this is just from what I've read in some different articles. I'm not sure if you might have a little bit more information when it comes down to like specific, like at a certain point, if it starts to become more harmful. Yeah. So let's just, let's assume that there is, for whatever reason, there's, a, there is justifiable reason to limit cardio. Okay. So let's, 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 let's make that our premise. What ideally then what you want to do is do your cardio on a different day than your resistance exercise mm -hmm. separate it. Uh, so if you're doing leg training on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, then do your cardio Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Okay. So there's one thing. If you can't do that, if the cardio and resistance training needs to be done in the same day, then ideally you separate them by at least two hours and ideally six. So at least two by, and then by six. Mm. If you can't do that, if they have to be done consecutively, then you want to prioritize resistance training first, and then you do cardiovascular, your cardio, your aerobic exercise after. So there's kind of the hierarchy. Different days separated by as much time as possible if in the same day and then finally resistance exercise first cardio second mm -hmm. interesting okay um and you mentioned you wanted to kind of hit on timing or do you feel like you kind of wrapped that up no i think the timing was it um exactly that the okay. separate by days if you can and if not give it at least two hours but re there's one study that said six was ideal okay. um and then finally the uh, the other one was just the the sequence what you're going to do first now everything we've been discussing so far was focused on muscle like muscle hypertrophy mm -hmm. and again just to restate if you're doing cardio there doesn't there's not evidence to suggest that you're hurting your your ability to gain muscle mm -hmm. um, when resistance training if you are a strength athlete there's there potentially is some concern or if you're a power athlete there's a whole other realm that's in my world of fat loss 
What are the effects of concurrent training or adding cardio to your resistance training program to induce fat loss? And when, when you look at it from that perspective, it's powerful. It, I mean, it is a, a caloric deficit and cardio are the two most powerful activities you can do to burn body fat. Mm -hmm. um, resistance training also burns body fat. Mm -hmm. um, but cardio is, uh, I, always, I always think of cardio as you have your resistance training, that's your base. That's your heartbeat of your training life. You're never going to deviate from that. If you, you're in periods of life where you want to lose body fat, I suggest lowering your calories as your first emphasis. And then as needed, you add in additional cardio to that caloric deficit and to your resistance training. And that combination maximizes fat loss. I mean, it's that that's, and then, and then you can talk about adding in dietary supplements to that if you want, but that's a powerful, and that's how, again, when you look at these bodybuilders, that's how they're getting into that shape. There's, there's very few bodybuilders that aren't doing a lot of cardio towards the end of their prep to get as lean as what we see them. Interesting. So yeah, um, I guess we could go down the uh, supplement rabbit hole. So I'm curious about fat burners. And I think most people are too. Um, it, it seems like there's a lot of, once again, kind of white noise surrounding fat burners. Cause you have some people saying that they don't work at all. And then you have some people saying like, oh, this is the greatest thing in the world. So I guess let's kind of go down all the different kinds of fat burners. And I, the first one that comes to mind and probably to everybody's mind would be caffeine. And then, um, you could just kind of take it from there. Caffeine is, is the fat burner. I mean, when, whenever there's a fat burning supplement, mm -hmm. if it's effective, it's because it has caffeine. Um, and if, the, if they don't have caffeine, I would, I would tend to predict that it's probably worthless. So mm -hmm. caffeine is really the active ingredient in pretty much any marketed fat loss supplement. Mm -hmm. So I, I have a high positive opinion of caffeine in, for a fat loss agent. I mean, it, it's, it is really good mm -hmm. when you look at everything that it does. Now, I say that I don't take caffeine for my fat loss um, experiments on myself. I, I don't like caffeine. I, I, want, I want my diet and my exercise to control it. Um, I drink Diet Dr. Pepper every day. That has, I don't know, 40 milligrams or something, maybe 80 if I drink two. So I don't go out of my way to avoid caffeine. And even though I believe it is a really good fat loss agent, it's not something that I think, oh, everybody should be doing this. I, I like relying on the, the diet and the program, the, the exercise for that. Mm. But let's look at caffeine. We have two sides of uh, the energy balance equation. So if you're going to lose body fat, you have to factor how many calories you're growing into your body. So how, many, how much food are you eating? And then how many calories are going out of your body? How many calories are you expending? And caffeine positively impacts both sides of that equation. On the calories in aspect, it has a very modest appetite suppressing effect. It's not overwhelming. It may not even be perceptible for, for many people, but it's there. It's very moderate. So, but anything you can do to, to, to help you with hunger when dieting is a plus. Then you look at the energy out aspect or energy expenditure, and that's divided into several different categories. You have resting energy expenditure. Some people call that resting metabolic rate. You have exercise energy expenditure. How many calories are you burning during exercise? Then you have something called NEAT. That's like non-exercise activity thermogenesis. That's like how many calories you burn just sitting around walking, you know, walking to the, to work. It's your, just your, your general caloric, caloric expenditure when you're not resting, when you're not exercising. And then finally, we have something called DIT or TEF. That's the thermic effect of food. That's how many calories your body burns when you eat food. Now it's funny. You think eating food, you're putting calories into your body, which you are but it also causes you to burn calories because it takes energy to digest, absorb, transport, and process the food that you ate. So out of those four, I just listed four variables, caffeine positively influences three of those four. It significantly increases your resting metabolic rate. And that's been shown a lot. Most, most of the research on caffeine is there. 
It also increases the, the number of calories that you're burning during exercise. And it also increases the amount of calories you've burned from eating food. So after, if you have caffeine with your lunch, you're gonna burn more calories in the two hours after that lunch than without the caffeine. The only category where caffeine doesn't seem to elevate energy expenditure is in the NEAT, which is just, again, when you're not resting, you're not exercising, and you're not processing or digesting food. Mm-hmm. One other nice thing about caffeine with exercise that's been shown, it actually partitions the calories that you're burning, and it changes them to be burning more fat than carbohydrates. So we call that a nutrient partitioning effect. Mm-hmm. Now, none of these are substantial um, other than the resting energy expenditure. But again, and if you were going to tell me what could I take that causes me to eat less food, burn more calories while I'm resting, burn more calories while I'm exercising and burn more of my calories from body fat that everybody would be like, wow, give me that. Well, we have it. It's called caffeine. Nice. Okay. So, um, when you brought up nutrient partitioning, it kind of reminded me of another, um, quote unquote, fat burner. And I think I've heard you talk about this a handful of times as well is yohimbine. Um, yep. From what I understand, yohimbine just helps release stubborn fat cells. I, I can't remember the exact uh, mechanisms, but um, what are your thoughts surrounding yohimbine? Yohimbine would be another supplement that I think has a lot of potential for, mm. for inducing fat loss, but it comes with a lot more risk than caffeine. So it's one of those supplements. I, I don't like this say experiment with it i mean it's well at least in our country it's it's i think it's legal <laughs> yeah it's legal <laughs> some countries it's not actually i had some i just they expired i looked to my left i had some over there recently mm-hmm. um so what yo him being is kind of it's it actually works differently than caffeine uh what it does which is, I, I love the physiology of yohimbine. And by the way, it's yohimbine comes from a yohimbi tree and it's part of the bark. So you're, you're trying to get, you, you extract the yohimbi out of the bark of a tree, or you can make it synthetically, which is what we call yohimbine. Um, real quick, the safety profile. If anybody has a lot of anxiety or depression, yohimbine can elevate that. So anybody who has natural higher levels of anxiety it's not something they want to take because it can really induce that aspect of, of anxiety. Um, what it does is there are certain receptors on fat cells that when, when catecholamines like epinephrine, norepinephrine, when they bind to them, it actually will slow down or suppress the fat burning or the fat mobilizing. So breaking down fat, it, it, it impedes that. And those receptors, I'll get technical for a second. Those receptors are called alpha adrenergic receptors. What yohimbine does is it blocks those receptors. And when you block those receptors, nothing can bind to them so that you're now, you're not suppressing the breakdown of fat. You're allowing the body to break down fat more liberally. Mm-hmm. Now you made a, a, an interesting statement about stubborn fat loss. In theory, and I, I don't have enough data to say, yes, this is great, or we know that this helps with stubborn fat loss, but theoretically, and I I think this could be true, are some of the areas where we do have stubborn fat, let's just for me, let's just for safe example, let's say my my abdomen is where I lose fat the slowest. Well, I may have more of these receptors, these alpha adrenergic receptors, I have a greater density of them there, so that that's going to be stubborn, right? I have these, these compounds that bind to those receptors and that, that doesn't allow the fat to be broken down in that area. So if I can block those receptors, which is what yohimbine does, and I have more of those receptors, let's call them bad receptors, in these stubborn body fat areas, well, there's the mechanism of how yohimbine may be able to help you lose stubborn body fat. And we do have some evidence that it does that. I just wish we had more. Okay. Yeah. And from what I've heard other people say, you actually, your insulin has to be low, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yeah. Man, you're very knowledgeable on this. You're, <laughs> you're, you're way in the physio- physiological weeds on this. Yeah. There's, there was two, one study, I think I'm aware of two. If you ate, if you took yohimbine with a meal or with carbs, it was not, not effective at all. So okay. in both of those situations, insulin levels were elevated. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this, this actually makes it 
probably more of a fasted exercise type of supplement um, and one that you don't take with meals. So th this is one that you would take fasting. Okay. Um, and yeah, and there's also evidence maybe, um, or sit, uh, let me just say practically take it more in the morning, not so much at night. So it doesn't, it has a tendency to keep you up at night as well. Okay. Well, you know what that would actually explain why I was having poor sleep a couple of weeks ago. I was taking a uh, three Yohimbine in the morning and three in the afternoon before I'd go train. And then, yeah, usually actually the last couple of weeks, I've been having a little bit of a uh, rough night's sleep. Now I don't have any Yohimbi now, but uh, yeah, I've noticed my sleep has gotten progressively better since I stopped taking it. So um, I do, guess I'll... Do, you, do you remember how much Yohimbi you were taking with like your morning dose and then your afternoon dose? Um, there were three smaller pills. It's from MTS nutrition. Uh, I couldn't tell you the exact dosage off the top of my head. Okay. MTS. I think that's, that's the red and black. Is that yeah. The, yeah. I think I, I, I had, I had some of them as well. So I think those are five, either two and a half or five milligram tablets. So you were taking three, if you're, yeah, probably about seven and a half to 15 milligrams mm -hmm. and real quick too, just cause I like to get data from people. Mm -hmm. Did you feel did you, could you feel anything or you didn't, you didn't really feel like anything? It wasn't, it didn't have much of an impact on you. As far as I know, no, I didn't really feel anything different. I heard some people have issues with like, it may make them feel a little bit sick or nauseous. Um, I think I did hear somebody say that um, if you don't feel sick or nauseous from somebody's you, him being, that probably means it's not working, but <laughs> no, I really didn't feel anything too much different, but um, I was on trying to finish up the last little bit of a cut that I was in. And uh, yeah, I, I was kind of abusing that a little bit because I think six tablets a day for um, about 185 right now. That, that was probably a little bit much, but I, uh, like I said, I'm all out of it now. And I think I'm probably just going to do it in the morning rather <laughs> than at night. Now uh -huh. you mentioned that. Um, so what about, I think it's L-carnitine is another one that's oftentimes uh, marketed as a fat burner. Um, what are your thoughts surrounding that? I, I, I have two thoughts that I'll share. So the research on carnitine, at least the research that I've read does not make, is not, I'm not optimistic that it's an effective fat loss burner. Now, physiologically, what carnitine does, it helps shuttle fat into the mitochondria. And that's the part of our muscle cells that burn fat for energy. Okay. So you have to have carnitine to get, to get fatty acids, like the, the fat remnants into the muscle or into the mitochondria to burn it. Now, in conversations that I've had with elite physique coaches, what they have told me is if you, and, and when I say the research that I've read, it doesn't seem that effective. Those were all taken orally. So people taking pills doesn't seem to be effective. Physique coaches have told me if you inject it, th there's a much better outcome for fat loss. Now, I don't have any research on that. Uh, I've talked to a few mainly bikini competitors who have suggested, yes, it's much better if it's injected. I don't know if that's true, but I have had coaches to tell me that. And I've had athlete or physique athletes tell me that. Now that's anecdotal. I tend not to base a lot anecdotally, but I, at the same time, I'd love to do a study on that, but I don't know how many people in my world are going to want to inject themselves with carnitine. <laughs> Right. So um, one study that you had mentioned you did also was suggesting that I think it was women increase their protein intake to help lose their weight or to help lose weight. When I talk to people about health and fitness and people ask me for like weight loss advice, I always feel like people expect this whole litany of recommendations and like demands that I ask of, or that they think I'm going to ask of them. Do you kind of get the same thing when people ask you about fat loss advice? Yeah, I think everybody likes to make it more complicated because I think complicated presumes expertise when I think the opposite is true. Okay. Well, that's actually a really interesting perspective there. So um, you did this study, I believe um, you just had women increase their protein intake because you were curious to see what would happen with their weight loss because the physiology of protein, um, it's very difficult for um, the calories from protein to get the fat. Um, do you want to lay out that study and kind of um, elaborate on how that actually concluded? Because I don't believe I ever heard the conclusion. Well, we haven't published that study yet. <laughs> so oh, I'm sorry. No, no, that's all right. I've talked. I can tell you about the design. I've talked about the design, but that, sure. no, I'm just saying there's a reason why you haven't heard the conclusion because we haven't. <laughs> we have. I'm still working on that. So, uh, yeah. So we did this study. We started it over COVID, and we just finished it. Um, I guess probably just about a year ago. Mm -hmm. And 
what we did, we had three groups of non-resistance trained females. So females who were not lifting weights. And this was not a diet study. This was a study to just ask the question, what, if you increase your protein, if you do nothing else, what happens to your physique? Because we have re other research in sedentary, overweight females, um, where if they just increase protein, they lose body fat. In my lab, we published another study in 2018 where we had resistance-trained females increase protein. They also lost body fat. So now we wanted to ask, okay, they're not resistance-trained, but they're not also going to be sedentary. They're going to be starting training. And we had two groups. We, one group, we said, we want you to track your macros. You're going to track every gram of protein that goes into your body for eight weeks. And we gave them a goal. They, we had them eat a gram per pound or 2.2 grams per kg, which is a lot of protein, mm -hmm. especially for people who aren't used to eating that much protein. We also said, all right, we know that not everybody's going to be able to do that. Or what if we're working with a client who's not a bodybuilder, who's not used to high protein? What if we took an intuitive approach where we said, we don't want you to track anything. Just simply increase your protein. And the way that we did that was we told them, we want you to double your current amount of protein. And we had them list all of the foods that they ate. And then we gave them a nutrition coach and they helped them identify the foods that were high in protein because these subjects probably didn't know this. Mm -hmm. So typically, let's say they had two eggs for breakfast. We said, okay, you're going to eat four eggs for breakfast. If you have fish once per week, well, now you're going to have fish twice per week. If you have a chicken breast on your salad, get double chicken breast. So that's how we approached this. And, and that's also a much, you know, it's easier to do that than to track because tracking your macros, that's a skill. You have to learn that. It's, it's right. a lot more time consuming. It's a lot, it's a lot more um, obsessive, so to speak. So we did that. And the data that we did report was the group that we gave them a goal I mean, everybody started, we also had a control group where, where they just didn't change anything about their protein. Everybody started at about 1.1 grams per kg. The, the tracking group went to about two grams per kg. So just a little bit less than what we wanted. And the intuitive group, they increased it to, I think it was 1.4 grams per kg. So even though we wanted them to get really high, naturally without you know tracking anything they weren't able to do that and then hopefully if i can come back on maybe next year i can give you the results of the study in terms of what happened to their body composition okay so that's actually really interesting that you kind of laid out the timeline of this so this is this might seem a little bit irrelevant but i, I think it goes to a bigger point that i don't think a lot of people understand when it comes to science and look i'm just a dumb old mechanic that likes to lift heavy stuff so um, <laughs> You laid out that this study started in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, right? We started it the first going into COVID, and then we lost an entire year mm -hmm. because COVID shut us down. Because the facility, my lab was in, a, in my labs in a facility where the building was shut down, so we okay. lost time. Um, yeah, and then we had to pick it back up, and we had to we had limits on the number of people we could have in my lab so everything about, i mean i lost staff members too so yeah i think we started in fall of 2020 mm -hmm. and now we're in fall of 2022 so when we first started again we basically didn't start then we actually started in that next spring because of getting it shut down so yeah it, it was a while ago mm -hmm. so do most studies kind of take i don't want to say a similar amount of time but usually like a year or a few years to publish um, typically when you have an idea of a study you want to do, like, so I know we want to do this. Uh, you usually assume a year before that study's finished. Mm -hmm. Most scientists in my field publish their studies much quicker than I do, whether I'm lazy, whether I just like to <laughs> salivate over it. I can't wait to do this, <laughs> or I'm just too obsessive over things. Um, I, I'm slower than most about getting my studies to publication. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, um, when, you, when somebody starts a study, especially these training studies, you're looking at at least a year because you have to go through a process to get the study approved. 
Then you go through a process of recruiting the subjects. Then you actually conduct the study. Then you have to analyze the study. Then you submit it to a journal, and that, that can take multiple rounds of revisions. So it's it's it takes a while, but in in full transparency, I'm slower than most about getting my studies to publication. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, that's perfectly fair. I just think when it comes to reading research, and especially over the last couple of years, I think a lot of people don't understand the struggle of you know, how that all pans out. They think that you could just go grab a bunch of random people and then, you know, you're off to the races. And like I said, I'm just a dumb mechanic at lift weights, but um, I, I don't think people really appreciate the work that people like you do, where you kind of have to put your nose to the grindstone and be patient and kind of watch all this stuff happen. And then eventually you could see the fruits of your labor. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> we call them armchair scientists. There's a lot of second, <laughs> second guessing. Why didn't you do this? And there's always better things. There's always limitations. Um, but one thing I, I, I very proud of my team, we, the studies we do are very practical. They, we, we essentially do studies that physique coaches want to know. And in some cases, they already know the answer, but I'm just validating it is what they're doing, like giving females more protein. And then we report that they gain muscle. Well, no kidding. But until we did that study, there was no evidence that it increased muscle mass in females. Now there is. Interesting. So um, one other thing I wanted to hit on, and I know you're on a little bit of a time limit, so I don't want to keep you too, too much longer, but um, refeeds, this is something that I've never really quite been clear on. So when it comes to like refeeds, um, if you're doing a refeed from like a caloric deficit and you're just doing it one day, would you still kind of keep your calories within a range that would keep you in a deficit for a week? Or is this supposed to kind of bump you up to maintenance for um, the week, let's say, and then the rest of the week you spend at um, a deficit? I, I know that's kind of a weird way to um, tease that out, but um, kind of elaborate on diet refeeds and some of the research you've done there. So let's, uh, we'll define a refeed. A refeed is a part of a, of a larger philosophy or a larger category called nonlinear dieting. Mm -hmm. So to define nonlinear dieting, let's define linear dieting. Linear <laughs> dieting is where you go on a diet and you're perpetually on a diet. You're day after day, week after week, month after month, you're in a caloric deficit, which is how most people approach dieting. Right. Diet refeeds basically interrupt your diet. Uh, typically, a refeed is one or two consecutive days of increasing your calories back to maintenance so that you're getting a break from your diet. And it's very similar to another format called diet breaks, which also they force you to take a break from your diet instead of a day or two that's usually one or two weeks of a break in your diet in that case. So think of refeeds as days, think of diet breaks as weeks. Now the, the research on these is sometimes positive, never harmful. And there is a key component when they are positive, the calories need to be increased when you're taking your refeed day back to maintenance. It's not a refeed or it's not a diet break if people are still in a deficit. And a lot of people struggle with that because they're like, well, I don't want to gain weight. Well, in theory, you can't because you're only going back to your maintenance calories. So you really can't. And in fact, there's no research that I'm aware of that has shown a refeed study or diet break study that results in weight gain. It doesn't happen. So my lab did a refeed study in resistance trained males and females. The way that we did it was we had one group of our, our subjects diet for seven straight weeks, we could say 49 days, while they were resistance training, while having a high protein diet. Our other group, the refeed group, they also dieted for seven weeks, but what they did was every weekend, they increased their calories. So they did not diet on the weekends. They increased their calories, all in the form of carbs. So we wanted to really push carbs on the weekends and we can talk about why. But what this meant, because we wanted that we have to equalize the diets between the two groups. So that meant that the refeed group had to diet more strictly. They had to reduce their calories more Monday through Friday. So that's what they did, a 35% caloric deficit during the week, and then 100% of their calories on Saturday and Sunday. 
What's up, everybody? Um, we're going to take a quick break and tell you about the show's sponsors. Um, we are brought to you by Element T Electrolytes. I've been using this stuff for years, and what I've honestly found is that if I didn't have electrolytes before some kind of cardio, and sometimes even before workouts, that my workout performance, or definitely cardio performance, would suffer greatly. Um, Sodium is responsible for every single movement, pretty much, in your entire body. And let's say you drink a lot of caffeine, like I like to do, then um, maybe it is a good idea, like I do every single morning, um, put some LMNT chocolate electrolytes um, there in your coffee to get a little bit more sodium, potassium, and uh, magnesium in your coffee so that way whatever diuretic effect you get from the caffeine is pretty much diluted by the fact that you put chocolate salt in it. Um, also, it tastes really, really good. Get some uh, chocolate creamer, hazelnut creamer, or even coconut, and uh, mix that all up. It tastes really, really good. So, uh, yeah, make sure you drop by, go to drinklmnt.com slash health and uh, pick you up some electrolytes today. All right, guys, thanks. At the end of the seven-week study, the group that took the refeeds they gained, or no, they lost significantly less dry fat-free mass. There's that term dry fat-free mass when we accounted for water. So they lost less of their muscle and not surprisingly, because your metabolic rate follows your muscle, they retained more of their resting metabolic rate than the other group. So in that one study, and this is the only study that's been published on this so far that I'm aware of in resistance trained people, yeah. refeeds seem to help them maintain muscle mass and have better physique outcomes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I think that's a very, very practical takeaway. And it's kind of why I tell, um, I've been talking about this a lot, even when it comes to just really anything in life is um, deloads, which is essentially I'm kind of interpreting that as so like a diet break or a refeed would be a break from the cumulative fatigue of dieting, because I'm pretty sure everybody knows as you spend more and more time in a deficit, eventually that's going to start wearing on you because it's like, man, I can't got to eat as much. I have to watch what I eat. You know, I'm sick of just eating all these low calorie foods. So it's kind of nice to spend a week at maintenance or maybe just not train for a week or train a little bit easier. So you're not as sore. Um, it, it kind of seems like that, um, even if there isn't any physiological benefit, it seems like the psychological benefit may be worth slowing down your overall fat loss. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're exactly like deloads for resistance trained people make a lot of sense. Um, not a lot of science. Not, we don't have a lot of studies on them, but the, the, the studies that do exist, again, there's never harm. And in some cases, they seem to be better for long-term gains, taking breaks from your resistance training. So again, I, I like the fact that the concept has now, whether they be diet breaks or refeeds, have shifted into the nutritional aspect of, of our field. Interesting. Um, so when it comes to, let's say diet breaks, cause we just covered refeeds. Are there any studies out there on diet breaks? Um, if there are, then they haven't come across me, but I figured you'd be the person to ask is where, um, let's say people diet for three to four weeks and they spend a week at maintenance and then go back into a deficit. Are there any kind of studies surrounding that? And what do they look like if there are? Yeah, there's, there's a handful of those studies. Typically, again, they're two weeks of dieting, or, and then two weeks of a break or three weeks of dieting, one week of a break. That's typically how they're set up. Mm -hmm. uh, most of those studies that are published, and actually I have, we did, we did our own study. It's accepted for publication. Should be published pretty soon in, in Journal of Human Kinetics. I can talk about that one. Sure. Um, but typically what we have with diet break studies is they're not harmful. They don't cause weight gain, but they're typically not helpful. There's one big exception, uh, and that's a study called the Matador study, and this was in obese males. And when when these obese males implemented diet breaks, they lost significantly more fat. They had they retained their metabolic rate significantly better. Like the outcomes were pretty phenomenal um, in these obese males. Now the the, 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 the always one of the drawbacks is if you're going to implement diet breaks by default, you're extending the period of time that you're taking to lose body weight. Mm -hmm. But for somebody like me, who's always preaching long, the long game anyway, I'm like, great. That's, that's a positive that forces you to take a longer approach. 
In my lab, we, we did a study in resistance trained females looking at diet breaks. And I'm just going to compare this to another study that was published from Australia last year when they also looked at resistance trained males and females. So the Australian study and my study are the only two studies done in resistance trained people. And we both found the same things. No improvements in maintenance of muscle mass, no advantage for fat loss. So they essentially didn't do anything except for one thing. We both measured psychological hunger variables. And in both studies, we reported that the diet break groups had a lower hunger or they were less likely to overeat or, and they had a lower drive to eat. Now that's, um, I always say that people fail their diets because they lose the battle to the hunger. Mm -hmm. So now we have two studies in resistance trained people where the psychological hunger aspect was significantly improved with diet breaks. And then one other thing, diet breaks, I believe, are going to be most helpful in situations where your diets are inducing harm. So if your diets are severe or they're extended for long periods of time where you are losing muscle mass, where your metabolic rate is being suppressed, that's the utility for a diet break to provide to provide value. In my study and in the Australian study, our subjects weren't dieting hard enough nor long enough to induce any negative physiological outcomes that a diet break could potentially help. So uh, it's kind of like, I, I'm hesitant to say diet breaks, well, they don't work. Well, they don't work if your diets aren't, <laughs> aren't causing mm -hmm. problems. Now, bodybuilders who diet severely for long periods of time, I think there, that's probably the perfect environment that a diet break would potentially help. We just don't have data in that population. All right. And while well, this kind of goes back to the uh, limitations of doing research, and uh, I, I think I always hear one of your uh, cohorts, Lane Norton, always say, the main reason why this doesn't get done is because money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's, he's, he's very knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's honestly changed my mind on a lot of stuff. He was probably one of the main people that kind of got me away from doing carnivore. Um, I know you're on a little bit of a tight time schedule. Uh, Bill, what is going on next for you? And what are you excited about um, kind of going forward? Uh, I recently started, I guess you'd call it a digital product. It's a research review. It's called mm -hmm. Body by Science. And essentially what that is, it's, it's where I take two studies every month and I break them down in a way that's very easily understandable for people who are interested in two things. It's solely focused on building muscle and losing body fat. And the studies that I summarize, some of them are current. Uh, in fact, some of them have even, like one of my issues is on my um, diet break study, which isn't even published yet. But some of these are, are landmark studies. They might've been published 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So all of the studies that I'm summarizing are the key studies that have really impacted and have forged the path of how we coach physique athletes and people that are trying to lose body fat. So it's like a, the, the best studies that have, that have brought us to where, to our current knowledge base of optimal physique science. So the best ways, the best strategies to lose fat and to gain muscle. In fact, there's one on detraining and I'll, I'll send it to you. I don't remember what issue it was, but it actually, it was a really good study on detraining. Um, and the results kind of surprised me. So nice. Well, I'll have to uh, sign up for that because um, this is something I'm very, very passionate about. And I'm not quite signed up for any yet, but, um, you know, I would like to start getting a little bit more knowledgeable and read a little bit more research than I already do. Um, yes. Oh, Bill let me add to that real quick. Yeah. Um, I try to make it affordable to everybody. So I charge $6.99 per month for now. Again, that's, that's what I call my launch price. Mm -hmm. Um and again, you don't have to be a research expert. The goal for these is as long as you like, um, as long as you like to resistance train and you take your nutrition seriously, you're going to get a lot of value out of it. And if I can just tell people, go to my website, actually just DM me on my Instagram, it's Bill Campbell PhD, or my website is BillCampbellPhD.com. That can take you to where you can subscribe to this.
Awesome. Well, I was just about to ask you where everybody could find you, but I think that sums it up pretty well. Uh, Bill, this is a very, very enjoyable podcast, and I'm looking forward to the next one. And um, thank you for sharing your information with uh, the guests. And if you don't got anything else, we'll close her out. Yeah, thank you very much for, for inviting me on. Of course, it was a pleasure. All right, everybody. Thanks for checking it out. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.